That is, they would not worship him simply when things were bad. And they would not worship him simply when things were good. But they would order their life around the communal gathering of God's people in worship. Now, we, in our study of Leviticus, we consider that last week when we looked at the seven feasts of ancient Israel, Leviticus 23. And they worshipped on a, this annual basis. But their, their worship was not just confined to these seven annual feasts, as you know, right? Uh, the, 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 that these feasts, of course, were, were times of reverence, but they were times of celebration, including laughing. They were, after all, feasts, right? This was times to get together. But God, God actually said, okay, you worship annually, but you also worship in this, this wonderful invention that God gave them called the week. We, of course, know that a year is the time it takes the earth to rotate around the sun, and a day is the time it takes the, the earth to rotate completely on its axis. And, and in the ancient times, a month, of course, was the time it took the month to orbit the earth, a little over 28 days. But you do know there is no astronomical phenomena that gives us the week. The week is simply God's invention. He gave it to them. In fact, Israel was alone in its day of knowing the week, and God called them to stop working and gather every seventh day of the week, every Sabbath. And in doing so, they would order their life around God. They would begin to orbit their life around their, their Creator and their Redeemer. And it just wasn't their worship. They would do so when it comes to farming. They would do so when it comes to giving out loans, or they would do so when it comes to their economy. All of life revolved around God. And we see that here in Leviticus 24 and 25. So we considered a God-ordered people. I want to share with you nine principles this morning on a God-ordered people. Much to your dismay, you could turn that note sheet over, right? And there are also uh, points there. So maybe, uh, God willing, we actually will get a two-hour sermon this morning. Wouldn't that be wonderful? <laughs> now, principle number one, God's people reflect God's image. Now, you have to turn back to chapter 23 just for this point. We saw in chapter 23 the seven feasts, but before we encountered the seven feasts, we had this little verse, which we spoke about briefly last time, verse 3. It says, Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So as we mentioned last time, the Sabbath, along with circumcision were the two covenantal signs that God gave to the people of Israel. If you want to consider more how God gave Israel the, the sign of the Sabbath, Exodus 31 will be a great place for you to study this week. You see, in this verse, verse 3, there are two instructions on how to keep the Sabbath. First of all, they are to stop working, right? They are to rest. It is a day of rest. Secondly, they are to worship. You notice he says it's a holy convocation, meaning they would gather together to worship the Lord. So every seventh day, they would take a day off and focus on God. Now, the, the reason why God did this, was there's a number of reasons. Let me simply just give you two quickly. The reason why they would keep the Sabbath is because God wanted to bless his people. Now, you and I may not appreciate the Sabbath in which they would. They were ancient laborers. In fact, they were former slaves, right? They did not get days off. In fact, no one took days off in the ancient times. And so it was a blessing to say one day out of seven, you don't have to work, right? And, and we, this is the Sabbath. Now, we're not sure, do we keep the Sabbath on Saturday like the ancient Jews? Or we do, do we keep the Sabbath on Sunday like the New Testament church, right? And so we as America, we can't decide, we'll just keep both, right? So... For us, it's five days work, two days off, 
And I think we probably, therefore, don't really appreciate the blessing that it was when God says, take time off. And, and this, I think, is very typical of God to say, the way you express loyalty to me, devotion to me, is actually a blessing to you. Right? When you obey me, I'm going to uh, order it so your obedience actually helps you and blesses you. It blessed his people. The second reason for the Sabbath was this was their mission to display to a watching world who God was. And so Israel would weekly stop working and celebrate God's goodness. This would be a powerful witness to their neighbors. Their neighbors would not do anything remotely like this. And, and, and they would do so. They would work six days and rest on seventh because that's what God did, right? And God would say this in Exodus 20 when he gave them the fourth commandments. I created the world in six days, rested on the seventh. You are made in my image. You're to bear my image to a watching world. Therefore, what do you do? You work six days, just like I did, and you rest on the seventh. And in this way, they proclaim. Every week, they're proclaiming, God is the creator. He created in six days and rested on the seventh. But interestingly enough, when uh, God gives them the second giving of the law in Deuteronomy chapter 5, remember these people who are at the foot of Sinai will refuse to enter the promised land. They'll wander in the wilderness for 40 years and die there. A new generation will rise up and God will give them the law again in Deuteronomy 5, the same Ten Commandments. But when he gets to the fourth commandment, that you shall observe the Sabbath, the reason to keep it is different. Deuteronomy 5 says... You should keep the Sabbath because you were enslaved in Egypt and I have redeemed you. In other words, what God says is you have new, a new owner now. You have a new master now. And this master is the kind of master who gives rest to his servants. And so in resting, they show that God, they show what God is like. They show the type of master he is. They reflect his image, just as you and I are to reflect God's image in our lives. Principle number two, God's people remember God's presence. Now look in Leviticus 24, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil beaten from beaten olives for the lamp, that, that a light may be kept burning regularly. Outside the veil, the testimony in the tent of meaning Aaron shall arrange it from evening to morning before the Lord regularly. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. He shall arrange the lamps on the lampstand of pure gold before the Lord regularly. He's referring to the golden lampstand. In Hebrew, it's menorah. It'll be one of the three pieces of furniture in the holy place in the tabernacle. It'll be a lampstand six feet high. It would be, uh, resemble a tree with a trunk coming up the middle and three branches on each side. On the top of the branches would be sculpted in gold, something to look like an almond blossom. In that almond blossom would sit olive oil. Floating on that olive oil was a wick. In these four verses, three times it is told that they are to keep this, this lamp burning continually. It's never to be extinguished. And the reason is, is because the symbolism behind this lamp is that the, the light from this lamp is, is to remind them that God is, God's presence is constantly shining upon them. In fact, look in verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake twelve loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. This is the, one of the other pieces of furniture. is the table uh, of showbread, right? That what King James calls the showbread. There will be two piles of loaves. Each loaf, by the way, weighing six pounds. These are big, 
uh, loaves of bread, two piles of loaves, six, uh, six loaves in each pile. This, of course, would represent the people of Israel. And so what you have is the lamp representing God's shining presence shining down on the symbolic representation of God's people. Numbers 8 makes this connection very, um, very clear. What, we have this symbolic presentation of that great priestly blessing. The Lord keep you. Uh, the, the Lord bless you. The Lord make His face shine upon you. So they were to keep this lamp ble- uh, burning to remember God's presence with them. And God, of course, is with us as well, isn't He? Now, we don't, we don't have a lamp stand to remind us of this. Though so that might not be a bad idea. Have a continually burning lamp in your home to remind you that God is with you. But more important, we have the words of our Lord. In John chapter 8, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He is the one who dispels darkness in his presence. In Matthew 28, as you know, Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. And so the new covenant, we don't have a tabernacle. Because we are the tabernacle. We are the dwelling place of the Lord through his spirit. And we would do well to remember that God is with us always. Third, God's people honor God's name. Verse 10. Now an Israelite woman's son, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the people of Israel. And the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought in the camp. And the Israelite woman's son blasphemed the name and cursed. And they brought him to Moses. His mother, mother's name was Shelomith the daughter of Dibri of the tribe of Dan. And they put him in custody to the will of the Lord should be clear to them. So we have this story of a man who blasphemes God's name. It's not, by the way, using God's name as a swear word. Um, and that would be bad enough. But he's actually speaking evil of God. And so what do they do? They hear this. They put him in custody. They're unsure what to do with him, most likely because he's of mixed heritage. His father's an Egyptian. His mother is an Israelite. And so they wait for the Lord to tell them, which he does in verse 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring out of the camp the one who cursed and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head and let all the congregation stone him and speak to the people of Israel saying, whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him. The sojourner as well as the native when he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. And so God says it doesn't matter what his heritage is. It doesn't matter if he's a native or he's an immigrant. My name will be honored. And you're to execute him. And they will in verse 23. I don't know how many times in our study of Leviticus we have heard God say, do this so you do not profane my name. Don't do this lest you profane my name. In fact, this is the second story in the book of Leviticus, the book of laws. Right? It's only two stories in this entire book. Remember the first one? It was in Leviticus chapter 10. Two sons of Aaron treating God with contempt and God struck them down dead. And both times, both that story and this story, he teaches the people. These are not just personal sins. God wants all of his people to learn that he is to be honored. That you are to honor me. 
Now, in the New Covenant, praise God, we have this wonderful intimacy with the Lord. As I just, I just explained that God dwells within us. His presence is with us. But let us remember that our intimacy with God is intimacy with the Lord God, the Almighty. He is the Lord of hosts. He is not one of us. We are therefore to honor Him according to His Word. We are to treat His name with honor and reverence. They asked Jesus, teach us to pray. Jesus said, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. God takes his name very seriously. Now we read this and, and if you're anything like me, you think, okay, this is, this is pretty severe. Right? Um, I'm uncomfortable with God's judgment on this man. I feel that in my heart. I don't know if you feel that. And um, we have to wrestle with that. But I... But I wonder, we, we sometimes, and I think especially critics of Christianity, are surprised or offended at God's judgment. I would suggest to you that we should probably be more surprised at God's mercy and less surprised at His judgment. Because, my friends, we are surrounded by blasphemy. There is a Roman Catholic priest in the Netherlands who is encouraging his parishioners to pray to Allah. He considers them all to be the same God. And so let's just stop calling him Father and Jesus. Let's call him all. That's blasphemy. There was recently a movie purportedly to be Christian called The Shack, based on a best-selling book. In that movie, the Jesus figure explains to the main character, those who come, those who love me come from every system that exists. They are Buddhist or Mormons, Baptist or Muslims, or are not part of any religious institution. He goes on to add the Jesus character in this movie, I have no desire to make them Christians. That is blasphemy. And it's directly contrary to the commission of the Lord. Go and make disciples. But we don't have to look to the Netherlands to find blasphemy or even look to Hollywood. You can find it in your workplace. You can find it in your schoolyard. You can find it at the, um, the, uh, throughout our neighborhoods. There's blasphemy everywhere. And what does God do? Is God striking people dead left and right? No, He gives them Mercy. He gives them another day, and then another day, and another day, and another day. That's called mercy. The Apostle Paul says God is extraordinarily patient. About over a hundred years ago, there was once this uh, atheist man who would go around in the churches of Scotland debating, um, debating Christians. And he, would, he was an eloquent speaker, and he would get up at the lectern, and he would have this blasphemous, humorous talk. And even the Christians were having... Uh, trouble stifling their laughter as this man blasphemed God over and over again. And when he was done, he would take out of his, his vest pocket a pocket wash and he would lean it over the lectern and he would open it and say, okay, because of my blasphemy, I'm going to give God three minutes to strike me dead. And he would just hang that there and the entire audience would be in silence for three, three minutes. That's a long time to stay silent. And from what I read, it, it was intense as people waited to see what God would do. And then the three minutes would lapse and he would pick the pocket watch up gleefully, snap it shut, put it in his vest. And he would turn to the man he was debating and say, your turn. Well, once he was debating an elderly pastor and he walked up to the lectern shaking his head. And when he got before the congregation, he says, does my esteemed colleague really think he can exhaust the patience of God in just three minutes? God is patient. Right? Miss the point. 
Every day is an opportunity to repent. Do you not know the riches of His kindness and patience are meant to lead you to repentance? Romans 2.4 Therefore, God's people practice God's justice. Verse 17 Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal's life shall make it good, life for life. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done it, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. This is often been called in the Latin lex talionis. Have you, maybe you've heard that phrase. It simply means the law of retaliation. And what God is laying out here is that the punishment in his, among his people is to be proportionate to the offense committed. We might say the punishment fits the crime. And when God is actually laying this out, he's actually restricting punishment. He's actually bringing it back from being too severe. In fact, you should not read this literally. That literally, God is not calling for maiming. He's not saying if you get in a fight and someone knocks out your eye, then you all hold him down and you take out his eye. That is certainly not what God is explaining. We know this because of the rest of God's law. For instance, in Exodus, God talks about if a slave loses his eye... or a tooth in a fight with a master, you don't take the master's eye. It says the slave goes free. right? There needs to be some compensation for that. Or even in verse 18 here, he says you kill an animal. You don't go then go kill the other guy's animal. What do you do? You buy an animal and you make good on it as God gives his standards of justice. Now, God's standards of justice was vastly different from the surrounding nations. The, The other nations, by the way, regarded property offenses... as capital crimes. God says to them, crimes against people are far more serious than crimes against property. You can see that in verse 21. Second, uh, the surrounding nations could remedy a murder through payment. I killed someone, but I have a lot of money. Let me just pay you and I'll get off scot-free. That was in the legal code of the surrounding nations. According to God's law, if you murder somebody, there's only one punishment. And that's execution. Third, God's law applies equally to all classes. Look at verse 22. You shall have the same rule for the sojourner, the immigrant, and for the native, for I am the Lord your God. So God says, unlike the other nations, it doesn't matter if you're native or alien, and by implication, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, slave or free, the law applies equally to everyone. Now, you'll remember that Jesus had something to say about Lex Talionis in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember that? You have heard that it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist the one who is evil. So what's Jesus doing here? Well, Jesus is not saying to the courts, okay, if someone commits a crime, you just let them go. Don't resist the evil person. But rather, he's saying to you as an individual, your individual ethic, when someone uh, is against you, you're to love them. You're to to love your enemies. You're to do do good to those who hate them. I hate you rather. Do good to those who hate you. The government still has its role. Romans 13, 1 Peter chapter 2. But Jesus says for us as individuals, we're not, we're not taking eyes for eyes and tooth for tooth. Instead, when someone does evil against us, we love them and we do good in response. We, as we saw in Leviticus, love our neighbors as ourselves. Number five, God's people care for God's world. In chapter 25 now, verse 1. 
The Lord spoke to Moses on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you. The land that they are coming into is God's gift to them. So they don't, therefore, we don't worship the land as our mother. Nor do we worship ourselves through the land by um, unfettered greed. We worship God, and one way we worship God is by caring for the land. One way to care for it, unless, at least in these ancient times, was to give the land a Sabbath. Verse 3. For six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath, a solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. And so just as God's people get their rest every, every seven days, God's land gets its rest every seven years. You, it lies fallow. You don't harvest. You don't sow. You don't prune. You don't reap. And in fact, in, in verses 6 through 7, we learn you can eat what grows naturally, but you don't go out and farm it. Now, this would be good for the land. Wouldn't it? The land can replenish its soil. This is how God cares for this world. But it's also good for those who work the land, as you can imagine. Every seventh year, if you're a laborer, you get a year off. Right? That would be pretty exciting. And then, by the way, every 50th year, you get this super Sabbath. You get a bonus year. So year 49 you get off, and year 50 you get off in what is called the year of Jubilee. Look in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Right? Seven times seven, 49. Verse 9. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. And we'll consider that verse, verse 10, more later. But what you see here, God is, God is uh, explaining that there, there's this year of jubilee. This is... 50th year, a year of rest. God would be very serious about this, by the way. Well, um, when God would send them into exile, he would say, one of the reasons I'm sending you into exile is my land hasn't got any rest. And so I'm going to give it its rest by taking you away for 70 years so that my land can recover from your abuse to it. And so God is, is helping them understand to care for his world. And, and, and by the way, this practice would not only help the land, it would help Israel keep God as their priority. You understand that they're in line for a big pay raise, right? Remember, they, these, these guys are a year, at this point, a year out of slavery. So for 400 years, the people of Israel have been enslaved by cruel taskmasters in Egypt. God has now redeemed them from Egypt, and now they're living in the desert, been there for about a year, and they are about to enter into a land, as God describes it, flowing with milk and honey. They are going to have houses in which they did not build. They are going to have wells in which they did not dig. They are going to have vineyards in which they did not plant. Right? They're about to win the lottery, if you will. This is a big pay raise going from slaves to, to homeless in the desert to this a land of abundance, this, this Eden. Right? And, and, and God says, okay, I'm going to give this to you, but this is what you have to do. Every seven years, you have to give up a paycheck for the year. You can't earn that year. And what is he teaching them? He's teaching them, listen, the land is not your God. And, and uh, 
The harvest is not your God. And the money is not your God. I, the Lord, am your God. And you shall worship me alone. And so he reorients them. And he focuses them on him. Now this will be hard to not work for a year, right? I mean, it's one thing just take a day off every seven days, but for a whole year. And so they, of course, would need to trust him. And so God's six, God's people trust God in their provision. Look in verse 18. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? If we may not sow or gather in our crop, I will command my blessings on you in the sixth year. So that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you shall be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when its crop arrives. So, right, the question is, if we're not going to farm on the seventh year, how are we going to eat? And God says, I'm going to give you so much on the sixth year, it'll be enough for the seventh. It's like manna, right? Don't go out and collect on the seventh day. I'll give you enough on the sixth day and, and, and it'll provide for you. And, and God, God is inviting them to live and eat and says, obey me and you dwell securely and you walk in my presence. Just trust me and I will provide for you. Just as Jesus tells us. Doesn't he tell us almost the exact same thing in Matthew chapter 6? He says, do not be anxious about what you shall eat or what you shall drink or what you shall wear. Do you not know that your father knows you need all of these things? But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Christ calls us to walk in obedience and trust. And he says, I will provide for all your needs. So you have the Sabbath year and then you have this year of Jubilee that God blesses his people and God blesses the land. But you notice God is intently going to bless the poor. Consider principle number seven. God's people give and get second chances. Look in chapter 25, verse 13. In this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. What that means is if you got poor, you were, uh, had, fell in hard times, you sold your land, every 50 years you get your land back. Right? You sold it, but 50 years come around, they have to give it back to you. Now if you bought the land, you might say, well that's not fair. Why, why do I have to give the land back? It's my land now. And of course God says, no it's not. Right? Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. Right? God says, it's my land. In fact, you get to, right, they would go into the promised land. Remember this? In Joshua, first half of Joshua is conquer the promised land. Second half of Joshua, beginning in chapter 13, God divides up the land. And he says, okay, this family, they live over there. And this family lives over there. And this family lives over there. There's no auction, right? There's no for sale signs. There's no homesteading where you race out and stake your claim. No, you, your borders on this river and then this hill. And God divides up the land. God determines where everyone is going to live, right? And now you have this land, but what if things go badly for you? The crop fails. The locusts eat everything. Someone dies. You're lazy, irresponsible, and foolish. And you fall in hard times you might be forced to sell some of your land, maybe all of your land. And God actually says, okay, this is how you sell the land. You can look at this verse 14 through 16. We don't have time to consider it, but you count the number of years until Jubilee, and they will pay for each harvest they get up into that 50th year. 
So if you're closer to Jubilee, the land is worth a lot less. Because if you've got one more year of Jubilee, they have to give it back in a year. 40 years from Jubilee, well then they've got 40 years to, to farm it. It's more like a lease than it is a purchase. In fact, you don't have to wait to Jubilee. Verse 24 says you can buy it back at any time. Verse 25 says if you have a kinsman or relative, a cousin maybe, a brother, they could buy it back for you. But the last option is God will buy it back eventually, as you see in verse 28. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, when, then what he, has, what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return his property. And God says, okay, I'm going to give it back. And now uh, we're going to uh, try to apply some of these principles in a moment, the next point. But I just want you to understand, God owns everything. It's just not the promised land. Psalm 24 says, all the, the, all the world is mine and its fullness thereof. It's mine, God says. Your car is His, your house is His, your health is His, everything is His. And that you, therefore, um, by His grace, get to use it for a little while. And we are to use it in a way that, that He tells us to use it. We're to use it in a way that reflects Him. We're to use it in a way like giving generously so that people who've lost their homes in Houston might have means to recover some of what they lost. And so God's, God gives second chances. In Jubilee, you get the land back. But listen, you not only get land back, number eight, you get your freedom back. God's people, eighth, proclaim God's liberty. Now, if you sell your land, okay, and let's say you sell the land, you get some money, and you lose all that money. Now what do you do? Well, you could go get a loan. Verse 35. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him food for profit. So God's very clear. He says, okay, when you loan money, don't you dare charge interest. Right? Loans were charity. In fact, they are to be like God. Verse 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. How much did God charge for the promised land? Nothing. What interest does He charge on them using it? Nothing. Okay? And He says, now you be like me. And you, you help people. You're charitable to people who are in need. Now, interest, historically, the church would actually practice this in the New Testament church. And they would refuse, if you were to lend money to another Christian, you would, they would refuse in the Middle Ages to um, charge interest or what's often called usury. Uh, but they found a way around this. That the, the wealthy kings and landowners, they would hire Jewish individuals to serve as their personal bankers. And so we can't charge interest to fellow Christians, but a Jewish banker could. And so this is a way that they would actually get around that. And this is one of the origins from this verse of anti-Semitism. That during this time of the, the church age, that these, the, the, these Jewish bankers, at the behest of these Christian wealthy individuals, were charging exorbitant interests. And, and uh, so they're trying to manipulate. Eventually the church kind of figured this out, that there's a difference between a loan of capital and a loan of subsistence. Right? If you want to start a business, that's a loan of capital. You're trying to stay alive, that's a loan of subsistence. And what God is clearly talking about here is if people, these are not people trying to remodel their bathroom. These are people trying to keep their bathroom, right? And their house and everything. 
And so in those situations, you don't take someone's misfortune and use it as an opportunity to make profit. You don't take someone who's dead broke, no food, no land, says, sure, I'll give you a loan, 18% interest, and give me the title for your car as collateral. My people don't do that, God says. My people don't see other people's plight as a way to get rich, God says. Instead, they are to be like me and help. Now, what if you're still in trouble? So you sold your land, right? You got a loan, and things still are not going well for you. You can then sell yourself as a slave. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you. Now, we hear the word slave, and we automatically think of American uh, slavery, brutal slavery of Africans for hundreds of years. Slaves had no rights. Um, you do whatever you want with them. They were your property. That type of slavery is, uh, is denounced, condemned in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.9, and it's forbidden in the Old Covenant. If you read on in verse 39, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant. And as a sojourner, look down in verse 43, you shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but you shall fear the Lord your God. And so God, is, God wants to make slavery, this type of slavery, as humane as possible. So Exodus 26 says slaves abuse, they get to go free. Slaves would rest on the Sabbath. Exodus 20, they're treated with compassion. Deuteronomy 15. It would be more like imprisonment, I think. Many understand this type of slavery to be similar to imprisonment. This is how you would pay off your debt. In fact, it might be more humane than imprisonment. Um, you're not locked up behind bars. You're actually still out in society, have an opportunity to make amends. This would be for some people literally a way to save their lives, right? In fact, Deuteronomy uh, chapter 15 says this can be so good as you exchange your labor for housing and food that you could actually enter into permanent slavery. Well, the last step, let's say things are so bad that you, sold, you can't buy, find anybody who will hire you as a slave, well, then you could, a Jewish person, you could actually sell yourself to a Gentile, verses 47 through 54. You don't want to do that if you're an Israelite. That would be as low as you can go. But even if you do that, every 50 years, every Israel's debt is forgiven. Every Israel in chains, enslaved, is free to go home. Look at this, verse 54. And if he is not redeemed by any of these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. They get to go free, God says. Why? Because they belong to God. Verse 55, For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. They belong to me, God said. I freed them from Egypt, not so they could be enslaved to you but so that they can serve me. In fact, God says on this 50th year, you are to blow the trumpets and you are to proclaim liberty throughout the land. Look back in verse 10. And God says, and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you return to his clan. Right? His freedom. He says, proclaim freedom throughout the land. It almost sounds American. In fact, if you go up to Philadelphia, you'll find a bell with a crack in it. Right? And you'll wait in line to see this bell. It's called the Liberty Bell. And on that Liberty Bell is a verse from Scripture that says, Proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. Leviticus 25, verse 10. The bell, by the way, amongst other things, became a, a symbol for the cry of the American abolitionist movement. 
God says there's freedom every 50 years. Now, raise your hand for me this morning if you are under the age of 50. Okay? Everyone under the age of 50, keep your hands up, look around. Right? There's quite a number of us. Some of you are, I wish I didn't ask this question. Um, All right. Okay, so lower your hands. So for many of us, listen, many of us, the year of Jubilee would be something we've never experienced. It would be something we might be looking forward to, something we've heard about. Do you understand? This is a once-in-a-lifetime event. And if you were poor, you were pretty excited for the year of Jubilee. I mean, could you imagine 40 years of living in poverty? You've lost your land, you're serving another's home, and one day the trumpets start blasting throughout the land, and just like that, your debt is canceled, you're free, you go back home, right? This is good news for the poor. The slate is wiped clean. You get to start over, right? That's good news if you're poor. It's not such good news if you're rich. Because the, over the last 49 years, you've accumulated property, servants, right? And every 50 years, you have to let it go. And this would prevent, in God's people, the accumulation of this vast generational wealth in the hands of a few people. God's people did not have a class of rich landowners exploiting landless serfs. There, and put it another way, in more common language, that's where I get in trouble, okay? God, there was not to be massive economic inequality among God's people. There was to be no generational poverty and, and really not much generational wealth passed on and on. Now, you, now you may think, well, there goes our, our California pastor again, right? Um, and, uh, This sounds a little too anti-capitalistic to to me. Well, please understand, this is a very strong passage on private property. You own the land. There were incentives to cultivate the land, to develop the land. I think that's God's image in us, to make it a beautiful, habitable, prosperous place. This is not communism. It's not socialism. The government does not own the land. People own the land. You do whatever you want. This is capitalism. But please understand, it is not unbridled capitalism. Because private property, though, is biblical. It is qualified. God owns it all. He owns your land. He owns their land. God is the owner of it. And we are to do with our land, or for us, it would be capital. Our, our capital is not invested in land. We're not an agrarian society as God instructs. Now, what do we do? We, we, don't, of course, we don't give the land back. Christians don't give land back every 50 years. We're not ancient Israel. We're under a different covenant. Right? We're not an agrarian society. Right? Our land is not parceled out by God. And who's the original owner? We go back to 1776. We go to 1491. And so we can't apply this one-to-one. But what we can see is that God gives us stewardship. And we're to use our resources and our time and, and, and our capital for the good of other people, even when it costs us. And it will cost us if we do it the way God wants us to do it. In fact, you also see that the poor are given opportunities. I think this passage would support bankruptcy laws. I think this passage would support an existence of a social safety net. Right? But you do notice that the poor are not given a check at the beginning of the month, every month. So they could take that money and continue to make poor decisions and, and, and use it on, on sin. They're given an opportunity, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Every 50 years, right, you get land. You get, you get a job. You get a business once an opportunity, 
Time to start again. This is why I I so appreciate ministries like Tree of Life. You even have an insert in your bulletin. And they need food for the food pantry. But even beyond that, Tree of Life just doesn't give food out. They give vocational education. They do financial counseling. They try to hook up people who need jobs with people who have jobs to give the poor opportunities. You also see that this teaches that family unity is vital. right? The Jubilee would reverse decades of decay from debt. And you would reunite people back on the ancestral land. So you not only get your land, you not only return to your land, you return to your clan. You return to your people. That the land will be kept within the family. And God would promote the unity of the family as the bedrock for that society. And I think we would do well likewise to follow God's model here. We also see, before we move to our last point, that priorities, I think, are emphasized through this. Because of Jubilee, you could only get so wealthy. Every 50 years, you have to just give it all up. And by the way, that's not much different from us. It may not be every 50 years, but maybe every 80 years. Maybe if you're fortunate, you give it up every 100 years. But you're giving it all up one way or another. And what God says is, by doing this, you know what God says? The big prize is not in this life. Give it up, because you don't live for now. And he would be doing this to help them focus on the coming day of the Messiah. And so consider, lastly, God's people looked to God's Messiah. I invite you to leave Leviticus and let's turn to Luke chapter 4. We'll just be here for five minutes, and then we'll be done for this morning. Luke chapter 4. This is the passage that Pastor Josh read for us this morning. You see that God would eventually raise up prophets and Prophets will continually announce to the people of Israel, prophets like Isaiah, that there's a day coming when every man will live under their fig tree. There's a day coming when all debts are canceled. There's a, there's a day coming when you live in the company of your family. There's a day com- coming when you enjoy the rest of the Sabbath year in safety and provision in this land flowing with abundance in the fellowship of their gods. And Jubilee was simply a foretaste of that. It would remind them of this coming day, the day of the Messiah. And so hundreds of years passed before God legislated in Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. We go hundreds of years until this man named Jesus goes home to Nazareth. And he goes on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, to, to church, if you will, to the synagogue. And he is this up-and-coming rabbi. And so we pick up the story in Luke 4, verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I am the anointed one, or or at least Isaiah foretold of the anointed one. That, That means Messiah. And what would the Messiah do? He would proclaim liberty to the captives. That's Leviticus 25.10 that Isaiah is referring to. And then he says, not only proclaim liberty to the captives, 
proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Every commentator understands that reference to the year of the Lord's favor as to the year of Jubilee. So Isaiah told this anointed one would come and he would, he would proclaim Jubilee to his people. Okay, we'll pick it up. So we read that. What happens? And he rolled up the scroll, verse 20, and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And what Jesus is saying, I am the Jubilee. Jesus is God's Jubilee. I have come to cancel your debt. I have come to set you free. I have come to bring you home. I have come to restore you to your Father forever. Jesus I am your liberation. I am your home. I am your family. I am your Sabbath rest. And I have come to bring jubilee to you that you might come home free of your debt to God and live with God as your Father forever and ever. You say, well, how can we go home? We can go home because Jesus left home. He went from heaven to earth. He was cast away from home. How can we be free? Because Jesus was bound. How can we have God as our Father? Because Jesus was kicked out of God's family as He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? This is how He can be our Jubilee. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. And I'm telling you based upon the very words of Jesus Christ that, that you can be set free today if you would place your faith in the Son of God. He gives second chances. And maybe you're hearing the Gospel today for the second time. Or maybe it's the thousandth time. And it is God in His abundant and patient mercy to you giving you another chance. Will you not have your slate wiped clean? Will you not have your debt forgiven? Will you not return to the One who has made you and put His Son on the cross to die for your sin? He extends His redemption to you right now. And He says, if you will bow your knee to Me as King, and swear your loyalty to Jesus as Lord, believing that He died upon the cross and rose three days later from the dead, you will be saved. I offer you jubilee today through Jesus Christ. And for the rest of us, believers in Christ, the jubilee in which we experience through Jesus is just, is just a foretaste of what one day we will experience. God once took the, When this all started, God took this man named Abram. And he brought them to this land. And he says, Abram, I'm, I'm going to give this land to your descendants. Abraham never owned a stitch of it except for a burial plot for his wife. That's why it's called the promised land. Abraham didn't get it, but it was promised to him. And we read in the book of Hebrews, by faith, Abram went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents. For he was looking forward to the city whose designer and builder is God, right? That's the land we are to look forward to. 
So my brothers and sisters, don't live just to get more and more and more. Look to what God has in store for you. Set your hearts upon heaven. We, we are the, the, the church today is like the equivalent of Israel at the time of Leviticus. We have been redeemed from our bondage by the blood of the Passover lamb. And yet we are not yet in the promised land. We are, we are, if you will, looking into Canaan on the other side of Jordan, on Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I am bound. I am bound. I am bound for the promised land. Our Father, we delight today knowing that Christ has come to set us free and to bring us home. That He one day will take us into the land of an eternal Sabbath of abounding joy and delight and provision in Your presence. Will You not in Your abounding grace For everyone under this roof, will you not call them by name and gather them to yourself? In your sovereign grace we pray. Amen.